Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another one of our Sunday uh, live versions of the breakdown. Uh, it's it's wonderful coming into the show tonight, knowing that we're doing the midweek shows and that this isn't going to be a two and a half to three hour marathon uh, because that's how quickly Alberta politics moves these days. Um, right out of the gates, we've got Deirdre Mitchell McLean who has tapped in. Deirdre, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Nate. How are you? Well, you know, it's been a bit of a week, but one muddles through <laughs> as one does. Right. Right. It's Sunday night. We get to air our grievances and start again tomorrow. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and God knows there will be no shortage of things to talk about this week. <laughs> almost for sure. Um, but I want to start with sort of um, a bit of an acknowledgement, I guess. Because, and it's, it's, I mean, it's political, but it's not, but it is, um, we got to talk. I, I, I can't think of a more important and bigger story, uh, that's going on in Alberta right now than the situation with schools and, uh, respiratory, uh, illness. Yeah. Um, it is by almost every metric that I've seen intelligent people produce, uh, largely, unprecedented in regards to the number of absences that schools are seeing across the province. We did a whole thread where we were getting um, the the notifications that Alberta Health Services was providing to schools to apparently fill out. My favorite one was the, the school that forgot to put the re-notice of respiratory illness outbreak at they, they forgot to, to change insert school's name here. They got it in the next paragraph. But this is, I mean, there's, there's two parts of this that I think are really important to highlight. First of all, we have no way of knowing how much of this is COVID. We know that there's a lot of hospitals that have talked about um, RSV uh, or respiratory syncytial virus, which is a seasonal respiratory virus that... Uh, for a lot of kids, isn't a really big deal, but for some kids, is a tremendous big deal. And I say this with a little bit of firsthand experience and uh, frustration, I'll say, um, because when my eldest child was, I think he was three or four, he he was he was a, a little and um, he got a uh, viral pneumonia and what's called a pleural effusion. And it was because of respiratory syncytial virus. He was admitted to the hospital for, I think it was six or seven days. We made tents in the, the, the room. It was a lot of fun, but uh, it's, it's, it's serious stuff in, in the wrong kids. And there's a lot of evidence that, that strongly shows that uh, it, um, there's there's additional risks come with it and particularly it has the the biggest risk despite what some pundits um i'm gonna go ahead and I, i'm not even gonna call the, the the person whose name i will not repeat a hack simply because i work hard to maintain that title and i don't think that that he deserves it uh it, it has nothing to do with whether or not kids eat pop tarts for dessert it has far more to do with underlying respiratory issues and far more to do with, I mean, we've seen a couple of, of physicians come out and say, I had a premature kid and this is a big deal for them. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I mean, here's my question for you, Deirdre, as we muddle our way through this inevitable um, 
uh, I'm not going to have anything nice to say. What did, what did you take as a, I mean, you're a parent too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think your kids are older. Yeah, they're past, uh, they're past when RSV would be a particular concern. Like my youngest is now 12. So. There you go. Um, yeah. If you were to think of when you had a kid who was, I don't know, two or three, and you saw the minister of education come out and say, I know situations happen. Um, mm-hmm. What? Who's? What? I don't understand why. Why anyone would say that? Help me understand this. Um, I mean, obviously the the. I mean, it's it's. I can't even say it's this particular government. It's it does seem to be in our case more often this particular government, but I think you see this in governments actually all across the all across the country and in many countries that are trying to pass the responsibility off as not theirs. And I mean, it, it, again, this is just kind of one of those things that are turning our trust in our institutions, such as government uh, department heads, like ministers. Um, It's, it's just creating more and more uh, distrust. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's it's an absence of leadership, and the thing that concerns me about it, me personally, and then we already have two speakers who have raised their hands, so we're going to get right into it. <laughs> um, but the thing that concerns me about it is we saw with um, uh, COVID how the absence of leadership, that vacuum, that leadership vacuum that existed, mm-hmm. that was filled by a a bunch of folks who started convoys and blocked borders and stuff it's fascinating to me that the the powers that be and the people who are in positions of leadership haven't learned that if you don't step up and do i don't know the job that you signed up to do or something um then you're gonna you're gonna run into real problems but we've got two speakers f-u-c-p wait a second i see what you did there (laughs) you were first in the queue so what's going on tonight Oh, we're doing this game again. Okay, uh, Ziad, you're ne- you're up next. <laughs> Howdy! Thanks for uh, calling me up. Um, yeah, I uh, am not impressed with um, Minister Lagrange's nonchalant, oh well, um, attitude towards uh, children getting sick. You know, if we look at Edmonton. It's 200 in the Edmonton Public School Board is 213 schools. So 75 of them is about 159 or 160 schools that have crossed the 10% um, threshold for uh, triggering uh, AHS public health assistance. So what happens when the school goes over 10%? Previously, it used to be they could move to online learning. Now, the procedure that came out in September 2022 uh, is that um, it triggers a report to AHS Public Health Inspection, and AHS Public Health Inspection uses this procedure to provide guidance to the school on additional measures they can take to try and suppress uh, the spread of the illness. But when you look at the policy, the additional measures they would take are pretty well the same as the general measures the schools are supposed to follow um, in any case, below the 10% threshold. So there's nothing incremental, really, that 
AHS Public Health can choose from this list of options in their policy, other than you know, moving some ceremonies or some activities online, um, moving things like phys ed outdoors, um, but, uh, and you know, um, online school, um, uh, and postponing some activities. But, um, sorry, I'm confusing that. When I talk about moving some things online, it would be something like a Remembrance Day assembly. And then the other online option is that uh, the students participate online. But at all these levels, whether you're following the general protective measures below 10%, or you're now uh, working with AHS public health inspectors to um, do additional measures, uh, masking is barely mentioned. Masking is suggested if you have a symptomatic student on a field trip. So then the student would be provided a mask uh, to wear if they can tolerate it. And the driver of the bus, for example, would be able to wear a mask um, at their discretion. And the staff member who's dealing with the infected student or the, the, the sick student um, also in their choice can wear a face mask. And this is, uh, uh, so I guess my point is, this is the de facto uh, prohibition on school masks. So, you know, in the Alberta school mask lawsuit that two awesome lawyers, Orla and Sharon, uh, spent all their time on, um, the, the judge in the ruling released in October uh, ruled that uh, Minister LaGrange's letter from February prohibiting school boards from uh, mandating masks at any time in any school for any period of time uh, was was um uh was not in effect it didn't carry any weight yeah yeah so for the minister to do that the minister had to regulate this prohibition through her power in the education act so um she hasn't but what instead happened is and i think the lawyers would call this a collateral attack instead what happened is in september this policy came out from AHS that uh, 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 essentially prohibits the mask. De facto, it's a mask prohibition. Because the only mention of masks, even though you can get over 10% of students um, ill, is um, for the kid on a field trip. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, one of the other things that came out in that court case was there was, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody, uh, but there was documentation that was produced that demonstrated quite clearly that uh, schools that utilized masks had lower numbers of uh, outbreaks and sick kids uh, than schools that didn't utilize masks. So the evidence is it, it seems like the evidence is is pretty clear. Plus, kids wore masks for like two years and they did just fine. So it's, it, it, it boggles my mind why. Um, there would be no 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 move for that sort of thing. But you already are you are you going to correct me here, Zaid? Uh, no, I'm going to add on to your good information. So oh, look at me go. <laughs> hey, so get a chance to speak some more. Um, not only did the Alberta Health uh, analysis of time with and without school uh, school mask mandates find that um, um, districts with 
without school mask mandates had three times the number of cases as districts with school mask mandates. So this is not just the school kids, but this is also the, this is the community, communities that um, uh, had school mask mandates. And then they looked in particular at one school called West Glen School, which is in the EPSB. And uh, they looked at a uh, outbreak that happened in West Glen School where there was one unvaccinated teacher and uh, some students got sick and then those students went home and uh, in that postal code for that two-week period there were 94 cases and 74 of those cases were connected to the school. So you have kids who interact with each other and uh, they then go home and then they uh, uh, they spread the they spread the infection to their families, right? We don't wear masks around our kids, and um, the the there was really good graphs there that Alberta Health prepared that uh, we in the public didn't get to see, which showed that while in mid to late September last year cases in Edmonton were starting to fall, in that postal code the uh, cases were going up, driven by the school. So, you know, when Minister LaGreen says that, oh, you know, uh, we can't get sick from kids and stop saying kids are uh, vectors of infection. No, Alberta Health's own data proved that kids are vectors of infection. And when they looked at the index case, so the index case is uh, who, who is it that infected a certain cluster of people? Um, in about half the index cases, it was a kid under six and about half the index cases is a kid over six and there was only one of those um index cases that was an adult so he had adults all over that postal code getting sick from kids um and um yeah this was suppressed and only came out in the evidence thanks to uh two lawyers who uh bust their butts working for free for eight months yeah they did uh an absolutely amazing job and i will uh i <laughs> uh I know that we talk about GoFundMe, GoFundMe's, and as much as there are GoFundMe's that are, let's go with problematic, i.e. the $90,000 allegedly uh, tax donation that Daniel Smith was able to convert, there are some GoFundMe's that are definitely worthwhile, and it's my understanding that the two lawyers GoFundMe is still up and running, and they are still trying to recoup costs that were involved because they did, uh, they did do a lot of work uh on that and you got your hand up again man uh i'm gonna let you i'm gonna let you come back in thank you yeah it's true i think they're fundraised to around um 13 to fourteen thousand dollars of the twenty five thousand they asked to raise and in fact i um mess or i tweeted back and forth with orla about this today um because i said um you know there's the um explosion of cases in Edmonton, Edmonton Public School, is having parents say, do we need to litigate again? And so they're asking Sharon and Orla, you know, can we get your help with litigating again? And um, I then forwarded around their GoFundMe saying, just a reminder that if there's any, according to the, uh, the rules they set up for their own GoFundMe, they said, you know, first of all, it's not going to our labor at all. Secondly, it's going to go towards disbursements or the out-of-pocket expenses we have to incur in the lawsuit. 
and then if there's a surplus, we'll carry that forward for any future litigation for um, protecting children with disabilities. Um, and I think one other type of lawsuit. So what I did is I sent a reminder saying, by the way, you know, um, if you want to support this, but you can't carry a lawsuit uh, as a party, then continue to donate to the GoFundMe so that the surplus over and above the, the expenses that they paid out of pocket will um, uh, support future litigation. But uh, Orla and Sharon haven't even been compensated for the cost they already paid out of pocket. In other words, they've had to spend more than $14,000 uh, out of pocket on top of working for free. And the GoFundMe hasn't raised as many as much funds yet. Yeah, I'm going to ask you if you don't mind if you would just throw the uh, the link in the 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 comments of the the spaces that we're holding, and then I'll make sure that it goes in the the show notes because I think that what they're they're doing, uh, I mean, what they did, and just in in making information that demonstrated that the the government was at the very least disingenuous, if not dishonest. Uh, I think it was was critically important work. Um, so if you don't mind when you have a second, if you throw that in there, uh, we got FUCP back. I don't know. Maybe they're playing the most, uh, kick-ass game of Galaga I ever heard, uh, or what's going on, but it sounded like you're having some fun over there. What's going on tonight? Okay. I'm really sorry. I was not quick enough with unmuting myself before I got usurped, but very well usurped. Zaid, I appreciate you. I know we've had contacts on other forums, so... Um, I just wanted to let you guys know that I have it on very good authority, as you would put it, Nate, the DMs, um, that Children's Hospital was in the shits tonight. Oh, dear. Um, they have fucking... Oh, sorry. Oops. My last no, that's name. okay. <laughs> um, they have ridiculous wait times they have ridiculous triage times the staff were on their knees and it's just ridiculous and i don't know what else to say i just like i feel for my colleagues i feel for the um for for the ems people who i know are sitting there with kids and i don't know what to do it's it's i've never felt like this i've never felt like this I mean, yeah. there's no question, I don't think, that that healthcare is in a state that it is never, at least not in any real living memory. Uh, it, it, I don't think that, that healthcare has been in the rough state that it is um, really ever before. Uh, if not in living memory, because of not only, and I think it's important to highlight, like a lot of people like to say, oh, it's the pandemic. It's not just the pandemic. It's this is a healthcare system that has been allowed to deteriorate over decades and multiple governments. The investment that was needed was not put into it. We we have the the gray tsunami or the silver tsunami, whatever you want to want to call it, that is has deeply, deeply impacted the availability of resources. And I mean, the, the biggest problem is there's no easy fix. It's something that is being experienced across the country. Um, the healthcare workers have not been supported for 
the incredible work that they do. They have been denigrated. They have been attacked. They have been harassed. Um, and there's, there's no, there's no end in sight, uh, for the, the stress that they're working under. So like my heart goes out to anybody who's, I mean, for sure, waiting in line at the children's hospital or waiting with a sick kid because a parent, as a parent, I know how heartbreaking and stressful that is, but particularly for the healthcare workers, um, it's, it's yeah, tough. it's, it's hard to find the words. It, it really is. And then to watch the government, like, lord yet another brilliant private orthopedic centre when we know what happened to the last one. The taxpayers had to bail it out because, and you know why, why the contract was ended? It was because the surgeries there started, it started off the same, but then by the time, and it was the NDP that ended the contract, and sorry, but it was rightly so, because the surgeries there were costing between $150 to $1,500 more at that centre than they were at the foothills, which was almost next door. And the, the thing is, we had the capacity. There's orthopaedic surgeons out there who were literally posting on, on Copping's announcement that they had the time, but they're not investing in the public health service. And people need to know that. Well, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I know that you have some, some extensive experience in, in healthcare. We'll leave it vague like that. Um, but my understanding of these, these private surgical centers is they exist and they do the, the, the sort of the happy meal version of the surgeries where we're going to do the same procedure over and over and over again. And then we're just going to conveyor belt the whole thing. But if there are any complications... If there are any problems, which is not uncommon in a post-operative mm -hmm. situation, um, then it's, oh, to the public health care system with you. So in a sense, while they're, they're potentially dealing with some of the orthopedic stuffs, uh, they're not providing an expansion of the, the, the general hospital beds, let's go, um, that patients might need in a post-operative complication. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong at all. And also don't forget they get to pick and choose the patients that they accept in the first place. So they're not going to accept the, the unstable diabetic. They're not going to accept the uh, person who has a cardiovascular history that's extensive. So, and yeah, absolutely. If something goes wrong, guess who picks up the tab? And you know, it's, people just don't get this. And you know, I have to say, I, I'm from the UK. You probably didn't guess that, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I, worked, I worked in a system that was two -tier, a two-tier system. And in some respects, it kind of sort of can work if, if you have the infrastructure there. And the only time it really, really, really works is if a shed ton of money is poured into it. So I was actually actually part of a big push in the UK to cut down the wait list for both um, cataract surgery and orthopedic surgery. And we had a 
different infrastructure in the UK. You have to understand this. We had a completely separate private system that had different hospitals, different DIs, different labs, different, like everything was self-contained, which we don't have here. And we had checks and balances because the um, consultants, which is, it's almost equivalent to your attendings, they you could only have a private surgery if you were at that top level where you were. And so none of the doctors or, or whatever underneath, they couldn't have private surgery. So it was only the top, top end. But they were employed by the hospitals. So they were employed by their their um, public health hospitals. So they had contracted hours at that public health hospital. So they couldn't do anything in their private practice that wasn't outside of those contracted hours. So if they were supposed to be at their hospital, their, their um, public health hospital between the hours of, I don't know, 8 and 12, they could not be practicing in their private sector at that point. And it, it's totally different. We don't have those checks and balances here. So you have to understand that what I'm saying was within those checks and balances. So I was part of a huge push to cut down um, knee surgeries, hip surgeries and cataract surgeries in in the UK going back years um, and so we did that. We did do that in conjunction with private hospitals, but we had to do it outside of the hours. So on a Saturday morning at my private hospital, when the hospital wasn't open for other things, I worked with my surgeon um, at that hospital. And then on Thursday evenings, I worked with the public health surgeon at my public health hospital. And yeah, we did cut down the waiting list. We cut it down from 18 months to six weeks. But we did that with a huge amount of money and a huge amount of investment in the public health service. So it's we don't have that here. And, and so people are comparing that to this. And we don't have the same thing. And I don't know how hard I have to shout that. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And one of the other big obstacles is I think has been identified. I'd love to get your take on this as well. Uh, just while I have you here uh, <laughs> is, you know, one of the, the big conversations that's been going on is there's it's there's a huge staffing issue. Uh, there are staff shortages across the board by and large in healthcare, And there's no there's no wave of the magic wand that's that's going to fix that. Is there? Sorry. Apologies. That's me. Do you, do you think there's a, a, any kind of, of quick fix to address that staffing issue or no? No, absolutely not. Staff are sick because, I'm sorry, but we need a mask mandate, among other things. We do, but staff are sick. Staff are, have long COVID. Staff are demoralized. And, I mean, I've never, in my unit, which is, it's not, it's frontline, but it's not COVID frontline. In my unit, I have never worked as short-staffed as I've worked recently. And this is all on top of Connect Care coming in and all the stress that Connect Care brings. I have never felt this demoralized in Alberta or even actually 
even in the UK, and I trained when Thatcher was freaking prime oh, minister. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I have never felt this demoralized in my entire working life. Well, I mean, I'm just going to going to say it and I I, I I don't know if Deirdre or Sarah have anything to add to this but I just I thank you for doing the work that you're doing not only uh in healthcare um but uh I'm I'm a fan of the raging grannies myself <laughs> thank you I've written all this song <laughs> you like my latest one very <laughs> much <laughs> So yeah, thank you, thank you so much for for sharing all those perspectives because I think it's really important that people hear and understand that as much as we have a, a boatload of politicians who are standing up being like, ah, we're going to solve it next week, that's impossible. Uh, and I think one of the things that has to happen is, and it, it goes again back to the the leadership vacuum piece that we were riffing on earlier, is we need to have the people who are in leadership or who are aspiring to be in roles of leadership say, hey, you know what? This thing is broken and we have to recognize that this is going to be broken for a while. It's going to require a lot of work. It's going to require a lot of investment if we want the kind of healthcare that we expect. Um, and it's going to be stuck on suck for a while. So yeah. that's an investment's a big thing. And I am, and I know you probably share this with me. I am so fed up of the politicians panning to billion dollar foreign, foreign industries. I am so fed up. Our money, no, none of our money should be going to private companies. None of it. And especially to billion dollar private companies that don't, uh, are pretty much foreign owned. And it's time that the investment, like people, Personal taxpayers should not be paying more than these companies. They shouldn't be paying more than Starbucks or Shell or whatever. They shouldn't. And it's about time that the balance was addressed. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, Sarah. Hi. You, you, we're, we're talking orthopedic surgery. So Ooh, I love a good orthopedic surgery. What's that? It's fun. So for a little bit of, little bit of background for, for everybody, uh, Sarah just recently had a bit of orthosurgery of her own done. Yeah, I got my knee redone. <laughs> my good knee redone. Uh, so I don't have good knees anymore. <laughs> oh, there you go. And I was also a nurse that was rejected to practice in this province. Well, maybe under uh, the, the new premier, you'll just get waved right in. No, I don't think so. Like, I haven't touched a ventilator in 20 years. I don't think it would be a good idea. But, so, I, I was listening to um, the lady, sorry, I didn't catch her name because I jumped in, like, middle of the conversation. But, you know, I was looking at some messaging today is happening, like, between parties and all that. There is no magic wand that will fix anything. <laughs> Like, we will be investing in healthcare. We will be setting up a huge recruitment. Okay, so... Yes, but all provinces are facing shortages right now. That's number one. Number two, if you're from Quebec and you took one of the routes that the other provinces don't like, you can't practice unless you upgrade. And if you upgrade, they're going to make you take English 30, 
physics 30, chemistry 30, math 30, and then it's going to be a whole bunch of different things, and you're going to have to pass an English proficiency test, and there's a lot of work behind that. Number two, <laughs> sorry, that's a little bit of frustration on my side, um, because I was denied to practice here because I was coming from Quebec. Uh, you know, uh, large recruitment. Okay, sure, we can, you know, recruit overseas. But again, we need to work with the feds. There's work visas that needs to be, um, you know, worked on. Then we got to make sure that everybody's up to code. Sorry for the lack of better words. Open brackets, code. Um, there's a lot of things like, I'm, I'm kind of seeing like uh, they're get everybody's getting bold in their messaging right now, and I think everybody needs to be a little careful because uh, a lot of people, if there's an election in May and not everything is fixed in September, it's not going as fast as what people would want. A lot of people will be getting angry. Well, it's um, that whole sin of over promising and and under delivering. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of mechanics behind like okay you want to create the biggest recruitment sure but there are a lot of things that needs to be done before you can say that you need to change certain standards and make sure that it is okay with the professional bodies first before you say hey we're going to be launching you know there's a lot of red tape Either we like it or not, there's going to be, it's going to be creating so much red tape. It's going to be so complicated. It's going to be eating a lot of resources. Uh, is it going to be fixed? No. What I would say, you know, start opening more spaces for universities next year. Start with that. To get a nursing program right now, you need 95% high school, which shouldn't be because I got nursing with 78% average in high school. And I was a good nurse. I did extremely well. So I think that we need to, because you can have really, really good, you know, theoretical, uh, theory nurses or, you know, managers and all that. But there's also the nurses that are working like on the technical side that is extremely important as well. So, you know, try to make the system a little bit easier. Uh, create a new bridge from LPN to RN. I work with um, Alberta nurses to try to make it work faster. Um, you know, there are solutions that we can do, but we're going to see the effects in two, three years, not nine months. Well, exactly. So I'm I mean, a worried about that. Like, sorry, I had to vent about it because I'm really frustrated with the messaging that I'm seeing these days. It's extremely frustrating. And it's so vague and it's over-promising. And yes, I'm going to sound like a conservative right now. I fully, you know, I'm going to fully admit it. But there's a lot of red tape that we need to cross before we can even get there. And I think that's not, not being dishonest, but it's not telling the whole story of what is going on in the background. Well, you know, think- if, if you want more healthcare workers, if you want them to stop burning out, don't be like, hey, I built a pipeline. Advocate for a mask mandate right now or advocate for, you know, try to work with the government to try to find solutions to have Tylenol and Advil for infants and toddlers and kids are missing medication right now. I got lucky. I found it in a compounding pharmacy, but not everybody knows what a compounding pharmacy is, nor everybody knows how to break down the medicine and make it, you know, 
because there is a danger of overdose and all that. Anyways, it's super complicated, but I'm just really frustrated right now because people are, no one's focusing on the real issues that we are dealing with right now. It's extremely frustrating. You sound a little frustrated. Are you frustrated, Sarah? I just came back from a birthday party with 10 toddlers. Um, you know, a little well, bit. Enjoy your RSV in like four days. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but Thanks. I mean, you raise, you raise a really good point. And I think it's an important one because one of the, and, and you know, you, you were putting your conservative hat on. So I, I'm going to ask the question of you and Deirdre both because you both come from more conservative backgrounds than centrist, some. Centrist. We're the bad centrists. Okay, there you go. Um, you know, we've seen with the, the current UCP government, one of the things that they've done extraordinarily effectively is decimate, probably more than decimate. And I'm using the, the word in the purely technical term. I think they've actually like doubly decimated. I don't know what, what that would be. I don't know my Latin that well. But what they've done to post-secondary education has been, you know, a perfect example of cutting off the nose to spite the face because you can't yeah. have people working in healthcare unless you train them how to work in healthcare. And especially when we're talking about some of the more complicated roles in healthcare, some of the more challenging roles yeah, in well, healthcare. That, that's why we need to look at different models of instruction for nursing. Um, the route I took in Quebec was 36 months, 12 months a year. And I was trained, I picked specialized, uh, specialization for ER and ICU. That was my spe specialization. <laughs> I can't even pronounce it. But, you know, I think that it would be worthwhile with the infrastructure that we have right now to reconsider the programs, how they run, all that, to try to pump more. Uh, it sounds so bad, but to try to pump in more nurses and healthcare workers into the system. You know, when I was studying as a nurse, when I was not studying, I would work at the hospital as a, um, how do you call it, um, healthcare aides. You know, I would go and, you know, help patients and, you know, take vitals sometimes or go change a bag or, you know, things. The resources were directed differently. So I think that they need to think outside the box and look at what other provinces are doing to see that, you know, there's other other models work. Like back in the day, nurses were trained in the hospital and it worked extremely well. Um, I think... I'm going to jump in there, Sarah, because yeah. we just got a, we, we, we got a DM as, as <laughs> now I'm all self-conscious about saying it because, uh, um, I, I can think of so many different ways to pronounce F U C P. Um, but <laughs> we, we got a, we got a, a DM from somebody who I'm not going to, I'm not going to go ahead and out them, but they're extraordinarily well informed. Uh, they are as close to the the situation and, and awareness of the situation as I think you probably can possibly get from a yeah. fairly high level. And Good. one of the points that they raised was, you know, one of the things that we can do quickly is work on on retention, yeah. um, because part of the problem is that uh, we are seeing people leaving the, the healthcare field because of, of, of burnout, because of frustration, because there's other options that suck less. Um, so <laughs> Sorry. 
I mean, it is what it yes. is. But addressing that retention piece is is critically critically important. And I'll I'll even um, I'll even I'll even speak from a little bit of, of of my personal experience on this. I try not to, but we're right in the middle of it, so I kind of feel like I have to. Um, the as as anybody who's a longtime follower of the show knows, I work professionally in healthcare. Um, and I have been off work since March um, because, uh, well, I got a I got a PTSD diagnosis, uh, and that PTSD diagnosis came from a couple of different things. But one of them was, uh, and it's been fascinating for me going through this journey to encounter the 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 mental health care folks who have been doing an amazing, amazing job of taking care of me and helping me with, with my, I don't know, recovery. Um, one of the things that I keep hearing from all of these different people in all of these different areas is they're seeing more and more, um, healthcare workers who are suffering from PTSD. And a big part of it has to do with this thing called moral injury. And that's not necessarily from the, the the very big bad event that that somebody experienced it is a gradual erosion of that person's resilience um because they are forced to watch a system fail and they are forced to do less than what they know they are capable of doing i know in in my case speaking candidly uh that was a tremendous part of what took me out it was the fact that I was, I was being forced by a system in failure to not act on things that I absolutely normally would have acted on. And I think that, that addressing that piece and making sure that, as this DM said, uh, making sure that there is retention, making sure that the people who are in the, the healthcare system are being taken care of. They are able to make sure that yep. they're keeping themselves healthy. It's, it's, it's such an important piece. Um, and that's what I have to say about, I, I wanted to make sure that I threw that piece in, even though it made me soapbox just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> and FUCP is back. So FUCP, Maybe oh, we're doing this again. Okay. <laughs> um, we'll 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 vamp for a second uh, while we wait to see if FUCP um, comes back in. But in the meantime, we've got Greg who's raised his hand, uh, and I hope that we've added. So, Greg, if you're if you meant to hit the speaker button, what's going on? I'm so sorry. It's FUCP again. I kinda, That's cool. I, I screwed up again. I was just about <laughs> to hit the button and something happened with my phone. And it, I, anyway, I just wanted to say I totally get it. And interestingly enough, if I was applying to come to Canada now, I would not get in. Yeah. Because I am an old fashioned, old fart nurse. Mm -hmm. I try. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. The old way, the way that had the nurses home at Foothills Medical, which, you know, I'm a, you'd call it a diploma nurse, shock horror. Yeah. I never got my degree in nursing. I do That's... have a degree, but it's not in nursing. Um, but I trained in the old way. And 
we hit the road running. And I know you hear it time and time again, and I'm not dissing, I am not, I want to say 100% dissing my degree nurse trained colleagues. They're all amazing. But nursing healthcare is very much an on-the-job thing and it's gotten so far away that I'm hearing that people aren't even getting into a unit before they've been in school for two years. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that you don't know if it's for you. But FUCP, I don't know if you were trained the same way as I was, but I was on a unit six weeks in. Like literally six six weeks into my program, I was already on a floor and working. I had two patients. I was not doing everything. I was doing the very basic stuff, but they put us on the floor right away. Pretty so, much, I yeah. we we pretty much the same training. I it was either six or eight weeks, and sorry, I'm yeah. really old, so <laughs> it may have been six, it may have been eight. Who knows? Yeah, but it was pretty much right away, right? <laughs> but it was. But what we did, what we did was we did we did the six weeks or eight weeks. I think I, honestly, I think I might have been eight weeks on in in school. But then we went on to a unit where our first three months were spent doing basic nursing care. Yeah. So we did vitals, we did bed baths, we did... Change the sheets. Yeah, you did everything to see your patient. And, and then you went back into school and you had to pass an exam and you did a, a project. And then if you passed, you could go on to the next thing, which was the next best, like, Thing, which was medical and then you started to then you started <laughs> to add to what you trained in and then the next one was surgical and you, but you could yes. only go on if you passed the exam and you passed your assessments and you passed you got all the ticks on the unit your dressings and your whatever so we, we got trained the same way absolutely. the exact same way yeah so yeah. fast forward to your last year you did six months management like you did you were you were essentially um, shadowing the charge nurse for whatever it was in, because I'm in the UK, it was a sister, but you, or a sisteress or sister of Mr, whatever we called them. Anyway, you were, you were shadowing the, the charge nurse. So my very, 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 very first shift as a qualified RN, I was in charge. Because I'd been working at that hospital, been training at that hospital, and I knew that hospital like the back of my hand. And and it was a good training. And most of my old colleagues, old like me, they train the same way. And the problem is, and I'm again, I'm not, I am not dissing my university trains colleagues I've got some amazing university trained colleagues but nursing and healthcare is hands on it's not book work some of it's book work we had to know everything we couldn't go on to the next bit until we'd learned it but it's about looking at your patient it's about caring for your patient and I do care that's why I went into this this industry in the first place there we go and I think, you know, it's it's 
that's one of the pieces that I think is so important to highlight because, and I'm glad that you said it because it's always one of those things where, uh, in, in healthcare work, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this a little bit and then I'm going to throw it to Deirdre because I have a feeling we could do about like a whole three hours on, on healthcare. And I have so many other things that I want to talk about. Uh, but, um, you know, one of the things that I've seen over and over and over again is people think that it's 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 the book learning and it's the technical stuff. And that absolutely does play a role. And when I was going through my education, I had to, you know, I had to memorize the coagulation cascade. I'll be damned if I could recite any of that right now. But I know how to I know how to manage a scene. Um, I know how to make somebody not feel afraid and sometimes those are the the most important skills and i've seen practitioners in all fields physicians nurses paramedics you name it and you can have somebody who is an academic crackerjack um and if they have never experienced the the human side i'll say uh they can cause more harm than just about anything else. But Deirdre, you've been sitting there with your hand up for a little while now and you're a co-host. So <laughs> let's get you in here. Yeah. So like I have a thing with, uh, because my background is not healthcare. So I don't tend to speak on the subject because I have no idea. So listening to like listening to, um, to all of you with that healthcare background, um, like super important for for people to understand from that perspective um so i mean i was basically coming in to kind of bring it back to to the like where yes you can you can have problems on the front line you can have problems with the uh, education coming into it with their certification uh, again time that it takes to actually do this it's not going to be fixed right away no matter what happens, it just won't be fixed right away. And we keep hearing that that the formula for change that is seemingly preferred by certain governments is to starve whatever they want to change of funding, blame it for failure, then propose change. And, and that change could be private or it's decentralization or centralization like whatever, whatever the solution is, but it, it does come back to like, it, it always starts with people. So our, our frontline workers, our healthcare professionals. Um, but of course it always goes back to what is government doing about it? And just like Lagrange's commentary on, uh, you know, on, on who's responsible for mass infections in schools, um, you know, we're, we're, I think what we're seeing, and this is, of course, where, where my stuff kicks in, is that it's always a plan, right? So in 2019, when we saw the UCP decide we're not going to, we're, we're tearing up the contract with the Alberta Medical Association, then, you know, why did they do that? Well, they, because they were setting up for the fight with doctors and they cut out the middleman or I'm sorry, not even the middleman. They cut out the representation that doctors pay to do this on their behalf. So, so it's, it's always about, uh, it's always looking at where these things are coming from. And, 
you know, as much as as much as I do believe that certifying our medical staff that that happen to come to Alberta, come to Canada, getting that certification in is important. And, you know, they do have to they do have to figure something out because we are losing frontline staff. There was a pandemic, but we're not the only ones losing frontline staff. Everyone is losing frontline staff. And what always happens with government being reactionary is that you will have them say, yes, we're going to create all these spaces for nursing staff. And in three years time, as it starts to build back up, but they don't cut the spaces down. So then you end up with people who've gone through the system or sorry, gone through the education. And now we have too many. Like it's just, it's this horrible uh, cyclic, like just just cycle that we keep going through because government tends to act in more of a reactionary than a than a preventative or 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 proactive way you're not wrong i mean it certainly seems to be that the the issues that get talked about and addressed are the ones that are the issues of the day but they're only issues of the day because somebody crapped the bed for x amount of years to exactly um but I'm going to use that as a pivot point, <laughs> our, our whole healthcare conversation, because as much as we spent the first, oh, gosh, 50 minutes talking about the healthcare situation in Alberta, healthcare was one of the ministries that didn't get a mandate letter. Uh, so one of the things that happened this week was Danielle Smith wrote her PR um announcements slash mandate letters to ministers, whatever you want to want to call them. I want to get Sarah's take on those because some of them were reading through them. It was just like, this isn't written for Tyler Shandro. This is written for the general public. Nobody's this dumb. Um, But it, it was very telling that we saw some, I don't know, some discrepancies, let's maybe say, because we saw, for example, for the Ministry of Justice, Tyler Shandro, he got uh, a mandate letter that said, boy, I really want you to, to look at maybe implementing a, a provincial police force. And because he was a Minister of Justice, that's where a lot of the attention went. But when you take a look at the, the Minister of, I think it's Public Safety, um, Mike Ellis, his mandate letter was very, very clear. I want you to set up an Alberta police force, Alberta provincial police. So, I mean, my first question, I guess I'm going to throw to Sarah. Is it normal that these mandate letters are um, written in such a speechifying manner? Usually it's not as speechify. Let's put That's it down. Word for, the day. For, for lack of better words. Um, no, usually it's more... It's less grandstanding, more ideas. Um, it's definitely setting your agenda. So if we would have to take all the mandate letter together, I could write you the throne speech and it would be about like 90% close to... You know, uh, it really set the tone for next um, legislative sessions. Um, fall and spring and um, it's going to be very 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 interesting but I, uh, the, the lack of um, how could I say between public safety and justice Shandro well you should look into it Ellis you need to do that but again like, I, 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 I have 
have issues with that because Nick, you and I talked about this earlier. It's there's no space to train those people. Like there's not a whole lot we're going back to shortage of staff, not enough training space, a lot of red tape and everything in between. Um, well, nobody wants it. I mean, that's the, no, the nobody it seems wants it. Like, we all know that it, it seems like the only no. reason that Danielle Smith is pushing this forward is because she seems to believe that this is the only way that the sovereignty act is going to be able to do some of the things that she wants it to do. She but wants again, to have, what? she wants to have a provincial police force that will, will follow her marching orders. Yeah. And but look at that's who's scary. surrounding you right now. Look at who's surrounding you right now. It's going to give you a pretty good idea of how she thinks. But again, she, um, how could I say, I think that her, some of the people surrounding her, they're very, very protective of their ideas. And they're trying to um, make sure that she keeps the course right because there's a lot of people behind all of what she's saying and her policies and all that and there are certain actors that we know very well um, no, i'm not gonna name them because we all know them but um, we need to look at who who surrounds her and what their personal agenda is and what they have been promoting and then you know when you're um, getting emails from all of those wonderful organization, political organization there, there is in the province, and you can see who's running what, and then they are pursuing. It's very aligned with a lot of those, you know, the Alberta Prosperity Project, uh, the other one, what, what's the name? Take um, back Alberta. Well, yeah, there's that one too, but what's the other one? I, I love Alberta. Uh, there's the Alberta Institute. And then there's the um, there's Common Sense Calgary. It's quite. And then there's um, that other one run by um, that was run by Mr. Anderson. What is it again? Um, there's the Free Alberta Strategy, the Alberta go, Parents yeah. Union. So those groups have a lot of influence into Miss Smith's agenda. So um, I would say it's more of a, a smoke, you know, a signal to say we hear. I heard you, and this is what I'm going to attempt to act on. But, uh, you know, she's she's listening to very, very few groups right now on what should be done. Uh, but the letters are not that great overall. Like, I was reading the education one, and I've been sh I had to read it, like, four times. But the first page is the same for everyone. But then they get their mandates. But, you know, Minister Shandro... Um, Mr. Shandro, I don't know if she's setting up Mr. Minister Shandro up for success. That's not a problem, too, right? Because there are some things that they will not be able to achieve because we are in a confederation. We are part of a country. And certain things only work a certain way. So is she setting up her, her ministers up for success? I don't know. Deirdre, you live in rural Alberta. What's your... Are you feeling great about getting a, a rural Alberta police force? Well, technically we have one. It's called the RCMP. <laughs> <laughs> a a, a rebranded re one? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, 
we do have like there there are some um you know there's some stop gaps in place right like they have to give the rcmp two years notice they can't just you guys are done so this isn't something that's going to happen right away but it is something that she's obviously putting into place so that it can happen um it's uh you know like do we need more officers well sure we do because like we have so out in out in Strathmore we have a detachment here we have I believe I don't know maybe it's under 10 actual like actual officers that work out of the Strathmore detachment but the amount of of actual space that they cover um so Strathmore is 25 minutes out of or sorry 25 minutes from the city of Calgary uh, boundary, right? And so we're 25 minutes from there. Our officers actually cover ground to the Airdrie, um, the Airdrie industrial area. And also to the uh, south over like as far as Siksika. So the, the reserve. So like we our officers are covering this huge amount of, of space. And that is generally the biggest complaint is that you can call, but you know, are you going to get somebody out there? And yes, you will probably eventually get somebody out there depending on where they were when the call came in, but it's just, it's so much ground to cover. So the idea that we could have additional officers, I mean, we already do. Right. We have bylaw officers. We have um, peace officers that are also covering ground. But like that, that was something that that Kenny had talked about initially to actually do something right now, which was to bring up those, you know, get more people into those positions so that they would assist the RCMP. And but again, that's a that's a provincial expenditure. So. I mean, dis, like, despite the fact that it's going to cost more and and I think only, you know, uh, UCP uh, MLAs are actually spreading this, that it's not going to. Well, there's no way that it's not going to. It just costs more. Like, like that's just that's just what it is. If the province decides to cover the cost so that municipalities aren't paying for more, it doesn't really matter because it just costs more. So, but I do understand that there are, there are issues in rural and the issues are, it's too big, right? Officers just can't be on every corner. So like, yes, there's, there are issues to be looked at. Um, but, you know, I've, I had this conversation actually at the UCP convention, I was talking with, with some people who were like, absolutely, I want a, a provincial police force. And, and I said to them, that the reason that the reason that I prefer the RCMP is because the RCMP is national. They have more people to answer to than the Alberta government. If it's an Alberta provincial police force, if it's a Calgary police force, right? They have even less people to answer to. And from what I have seen, the problems that we've seen in Lethbridge, in Calgary, in Edmonton with the municipal police forces, 
is that the less people they have to answer to, the more problems we seem to have. So that is that is really, I mean, cost, some things just cost more. You just have to pay it. But so that's not my issue, really, the cost. I mean, I want everyone to be honest about it and say, yeah, it's going to be more. But that's not my issue. My issue is that that I want to see the accountability and I want as many people to be holding them accountable as possible. That's that's my issue with an Alberta Provincial Police Force. My main one. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to use Sarah's bit where she was talking about taking a look at the premiers uh who's the premier is surrounding herself with to talk about the other big piece that I want to make sure that we hit on tonight because it's it just makes me so angry. We saw Daniel Smith this week appear at uh, uh at the Medicine Hat Lodge. She was talking about addictions and yet again she plugged I'm going to have to watch this movie just so I can criticize it fairly. And I hate that. Um, but one of her, her chief of staff was involved in the production of a highly polarizing movie, uh, doc air quotes, documentary, um, about the situation in Vancouver and addictions and talking about how, uh, we can't let, uh, the situation that exists in Vancouver, particularly the, the Vancouver East side, East Hastings, we can't let that happen here. And it makes me crazy every time somebody talks about East Hastings and, Oh, it could happen here. Um, because if you're not including in any conversation about East Hastings or the opioid epidemic, particularly in Vancouver, particularly in East Hastings, if you're not including in that conversation the fact that most of the problems that exist in East Hastings were created when the government decided to close down Riverview Hospital. If you don't know what Riverview Hospital was, I would highly encourage you to look it up or, or Google it. But the Coles notes of it is it was a mental health hospital that existed in that area and housed hundreds of vulnerable mental health patients. And when they started to close uh, that facility for a whole bunch of, I would argue, very bad reasons, one of the things that they did was they gave guaranteed low-income housing to people. A lot of this low-income housing ended up being in East Hastings. And because these people were so vulnerable, there were a lot of drug dealers, there were a lot of unscrupulous people who preyed on these people. And that was, in many ways, the flashpoint for the opioid epidemic, and uh, particularly in the Vancouver area. And that's really, really important to understand. And it drives me nuts when people misrepresent the history of how these problems came to be. It drives me nuts when we saw, when Daniel Smith is talking about, oh, you know, the, the numbers are getting so much better. That's because the supply chain's back open. It's not because of anything that the the UCP has done. It's because the drugs are returning to their, in many ways, less toxic state than they were um, during the the pandemic. But I mean, Sarah, Deirdre, why do we continue to see 
I mean, first of all, am I the only person that it drives every time Daniel Smith talks about addictions? It's always a plug for this friggin' movie. <laughs> am I the only person that that makes crazy? It's driving me bonkers. I I lost a cousin to addiction a month ago. Um, it's it's very 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 complicated, and as long as it's not treated as an illness, we will not be getting anywhere. And, like, why would you flash your chief of staff and be like, oh, look, you know, I accept everybody. He, he was in the movie. Like, it's very, very, the lack of humanity that the government is uh, showing towards addiction and how they treat it is causing a lot of damage right now. Well, it's product placement. I keep waiting for yeah. Daniel Smith to be doing a, a, a press conference or a, some sort of public speaking thing and in the middle of it go, by the way, and then pull out a can and say, I drink Coke because that's what it feels like. Deirdre, am I wrong? No. And that's and of course, this is a it's ideologically driven, right? Because this particular group of people who are running uh, the Alberta government have a belief that that addictions denote weakness and that help should be available only if you are ready to say, okay, I can end this with some assistance. And I mean, we saw it, we saw it with their, uh, their panel and there was a, a great doctor out of, Calgary, who was put onto that, that, uh, was it, was it, was it, I think it was for, for safe injection sites specifically, um, or, uh, safe, you know, supervised consumption sites, supervised consumption. Thank you. Um, but so he, he was actually, he was, he was a chair of, you know, he, he'd done this research in his capacity as, as a medical practitioner. And so it was kind of like, oh, you know, he's on this panel. Okay, so maybe this isn't going to be so bad. Um, but I do believe that it came out that he was just, he was absolutely sidelined with, because there was, because they wanted a particular outcome. And the outcome they wanted was, no, this is not, this is not the way to deal with addictions. So, I mean, there's a there's an ideological bend that they that they will stick to because they don't want to do anything else. And it's like I I, I would love to say minds could be changed. And I do believe minds could be changed, but I don't believe that these particular minds that are making the decisions for the people of this province, that their minds can be changed because it's not based on facts or evidence it is based on an ideological belief that uh, you know that 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 people who have addictions didn't pull up their bootstraps fast enough essentially but this is where sarah's point i think gets to be so important because the reality is we need to every piece of science every piece of evidence says that we need to be treating addictions and the associated problems with them as a pathology as a disease 
I mean, there's there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of uh, details, and there's this whole spectrum, and, and 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 and. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about dealing with addiction, especially dealing with treatment, and I think it's important to highlight that there is a difference. I'm going to probably get some comments on this, but there is a difference between substance use and addiction. They're two different beasts. If you've had a beer or a glass of wine in the last month, that's what I'm talking about. Go wait in the car. The reality is, is that there is actual evidence that's being at play here. And what scares me about the the current government, especially the current premier, is that she doesn't seem to know what actual evidence looks like, even when it comes up and smacks her in the face. I mean, we have a premier who has advocated for ivermectin, for hydroxychloroquine. She has the a complete inability to seem to be able to recognize actual, I don't know, science. And we're seeing the, the consequences of that play out not just in Alberta but across the province my favorite news story of the entire week and I promised myself I was going to find a way to work this in tonight was the the curriculum that came out of uh Saskatchewan Saskatchewan. where I mean CBC did an amazing job with the article but it blows my mind that in 2022 when we are having this conversation using the power of science and technology, we still have to stop and explain to people, no, the Flintstones wasn't a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. And so ACE, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's the Accelerated uh, Christian Education uh, Curriculum. And it is built around, well, widely held Christian beliefs. They're wrong. Uh, They're just wrong. Science. <laughs> <laughs> They're wrong. My my yeah. dad is a he is a devout devout uh, Christian. Uh, he's he's a devout Anglican. Uh, he's heavily involved in his church, and he is able to get to a place where he can comfortably, probably because he's got a PhD in paleo entomology, but where he can comfortably reconcile the existence of science and his faith. And it is absolutely mind-blowing to me that we still need to have the conversation of no. <laughs> <laughs> of what science? Yeah. And and that was I that was that was a pretty amazing like this what's going on in Saskatchewan right now with these with these uh private religious schools is just this this incredible mind-blowing thing that you think you know like we would have you'd see this coming out out of the states and you're like okay yeah i get that but in canada we are supposed to have more of a standardized education system uh that that everyone kind of has to adhere to and and you used to see these things a little more a little less frequently right where something came up and you know i even had it in I even had it myself looking at my my son's uh, social and like his his grade nine social studies. And what happened was not that I was actually looking into it. And this this makes me feel bad because I feel like I should have. But but no, him and his brother were fighting and uh, the (laughs) younger one went to kick the the grade nine and he used his binder as a as a shield 
And but the kick knocked it out of his hand and the binder went up and of course, you know, the rings exploded. So the binder exploded and I was helping him pick stuff up and I, I saw this thing about uh this political piece, right? And and I happened to know uh the voting tendencies because I was on the doors in twenty nineteen. So I happened to know the voting tendencies of uh this particular teacher. And and I actually picked up this one piece as kind of a, you know, haha, I want to see what this says. And it was, you know, here's the, what the NDP stands for and the liberals and the conservatives. And I was like, okay, this should be good. And, you know, that stuff, I don't really care. Like, yes, there was bias for sure. Again, don't really care. There's bias in my house too. We have these conversations. But there were, there were some things in this particular handout that all went together as we picked and put pieces back together and um and it was it was talking about ethnocentrism as maybe that's not a bad thing <laughs> i was like excuse me so like like again you know i my other kids went to this school went uh, actually and they both or sort of my elder two said they didn't have this particular teacher but you know and and i did call the school because i was like this is not okay <laughs> like and i and i posted on twitter first kind of without comment but highlighting some of these things that i really thought was problematic but i re but i i put it out because i wanted to get other people's takes right is this just me maybe it is maybe it's not um that thing moved because people were like this is not okay and so i did talk to the school i spoke with the teacher and and uh when when he was talking to me and i actually i did feel that he was genuinely um, he was genuinely shocked about how, like how 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 I had taken it, because he could see that that was not okay. And and he said he's like you know this is one of the interesting things where we actually get some discussion going. And he said but you but I've never I've never seen this this perspective of it. And you're right this this should definitely not be in here. This is this is wildly inappropriate. But that's not how he like that's not how he saw it. And it wasn't until I called and we talked that he said, Wow, like I, I will absolutely take this out. So, you know, like this this does happen every so often because teachers build their lessons. And but we're talking we're not talking about like <laughs> well, this, yeah, know, this political is interpretation. Yeah. This is a this whole is school a whole that's school. being taught <laughs> that dinosaurs and human beings walk together. Yeah. But the thing that I think makes the 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 part of the story, I mean, it's really easy to make jokes about. It's yeah. this is in the land of low hanging fruit. There's a school in Saskatchewan that's teaching kids that dinosaurs and people walk together. I mean, I could riff on that for <laughs> hours. But the part that is chilling, legitimately chilling, and I'm just going to read the paragraph from the CBC story because this is nuts. Quote, when CBC requested to speak with a paleontologist from the Royal Saskatchewan Museum to clear up the question is, and then they refer to whether or not the, the Loch Ness Monster is a real thing. Um, to clear that up, the request was routed to the education minister's office, which said the minister wasn't available, even though he was not the person <laughs> CBC asked to speak to. They had to go for, to a paleontologist from Manitoba. Because the government injected themselves into the conversation of <laughs> did dinosaurs and people walk together? <laughs> the government injected themselves into the conversation and then stonewalled it. 
And mm-hmm. we live in a province where we have a premier who has some views on things. Some of them are, uh, you know, bad. Uh, and some of them are just like demonstrably false. And it's it's stunning to me that that you know these these are the stakes that we're playing with here because there are I mean I'm going to say it again but there are kids in Saskatchewan who are being taught in 2022 that dinosaurs and people walked the earth together. But this you know is, what, Nate? I bet you they eat organic at home. Well, that makes it all okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have so many dark jokes I'm not going to make on that one. No, no, Um, no, you won't. I'm going to be a good poodle. Um, And you know what, Nate? I'm going to throw this in there. There is a... So there was a... A a Scotty... So it it was a T-Rex fossil found in 1991 in Saskatchewan. It was found near uh, East End. However, it uh, the, they wanted to they wanted to build up the the town around this particular uh, you know skeleton because it was it was like a, a rare uh, it was a rare find. It's the largest T Rex skeleton, like complete skeleton, and the town that it was found near, which was East End. Uh, didn't end up being the town that actually has it uh, on display uh, because they didn't believe that dinosaurs existed because the earth is only 6,000 years old and they had to move it to a different town. Wait, what? See, I was going to, I was, I was going to ask if, if they found in, in the dinosaurs little vestigial paws, if they, if they found his Tesla keys, because that seems to be the, the timeline that we're right? playing with for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is actually, this could be a particularly a Saskatchewan problem. <laughs> uh, that's a little more uh, pronounced than in other areas. <laughs> but I mean, it's again, like it's, it's low hanging fruit and it's easy to make fun of. But the fact that the government was like, oh, we don't want to piss these people off. That is like, yeah, if, they're voters, but they're wrong. Apparently I they're know. wrong, <laughs> but they're, yeah, but they're in a bubble and, uh, and they vote and they probably vote conservative. Well, we started, we started the episode talking off, uh, about the the consequences of a leadership vacuum it seems like that's where we're going to end it because we're coming up to the 9:30 mark i'm going to ask sarah if she has any final thoughts any other news stories or stuffs that we we missed anything you no, want to throw out there i i'm impatiently waiting for the ministers of health uh, mandate letter this week everybody thought it was going to come out on friday because that's normally where they they try to extinguish the nuptial five powers, o'clock but, yeah uh, it didn't it didn't happen not. It didn't happen. I'm extremely curious. I really, I can't wait to see. And I'm going to be doing a, a live tweeting of the throne speech on 29th. Um, but, you know, um, giddy up because it's, it's, we're going to, so this government has been saying a lot, but has not been doing a lot. Um, looks like they're having issues with their, you know, allocation of resources and how to get things done. Um, you know, they they announced this week that they were going to index H. Um, sweet, cool, all right, let's do it now. Not you know, right now, increase it while you're at it. 
only cost $265 million to give them 2,000 lawyers a month, which is nowhere near enough what they need. Um, seniors benefit as well. There's a whole bunch of benefits, and you know, pay um, special, um, you know, all of those people assisting those individuals and whatnot. Uh, I think it should be. And, I, you know, I, I'd like to know how, how sick the kids in the province are. And I'm I'm seriously hoping that we're going to see some leadership this week, but you know my my, my bar's on the floor, because um, my daughter was well, so my ten years old was telling me that half of her class was missing all week, half of one class, and then I you know addressed the school and I was like, well, why didn't you guys tell us that so we can take more precautions or you know we have a little one. Oh yeah, no, but it, it's just strep throat. I was like, huh. All right. Or it's just a stomach bug. Okay. You, you do you. But, you know, you know, uh, the response from Mr. LaGrange saying shit happens is not good enough. Um, the answer that kids get sick is not good enough. RSV is not, hey, Corey Morgan. Um, it's not something because your your kid is not the right person telling their weight or they're having bad habits. It's because RSV, well, Nate, I FaceTimed you one day because I wasn't sure if I should take my daughter in. Yeah. Remember when? Yeah. And I was like, her blood return's not that great. Uh, you know, she was really sick. She had a 103 fever. It was lasting for a few days. I FaceTimed Nate and I was like, this would be my call. And Nate was like, yeah, I would transport her to the hospital. And she had RSV. But, you know, those people out there just pandering to some bullshit, posting pictures of key kids are dealing with obesity that is not even remotely close of the situation. It's really, really, really infuriating. And um, it's important that we need to keep calling them out because this is not okay. And, you know, where's the opposition in all this? Um, I would be calling for a mandate if I was them. But, you know, um, they're busy saying that they're building pipelines. So <laughs> that's, my, uh, that's my take this week. But we're going to see what's going to happen. Deirdre, any final thoughts on the evening? Um. I mean, healthcare, actually, I, I have found that that this space is a fantastic place for for healthcare discussions. You, you seem to draw a crowd, Nate. Um, and I mean, but these uh, like as, as we find out every single time, there are so many issues within our healthcare system. And it's like I'm not saying that these that these issues shouldn't be. Uh, um, specified and you know that the public shouldn't know because of course they should uh but one of the things that i will say is that it you know the the conservatives uh nationally and provincially are looking they would like to privatize more because because the system's not working and this is this is the path that we are really um we are being prepped for just just like, like I said before, with uh, with certain policies that the government puts out, and it, uh, I mean, they've they've been very they've been very open about 
wanting to move to more of a uh, more of a privatized system and you know this is this is something that that is should be a concern because it is a big concern and it is something that that is absolutely going on and uh the more the more people that join these spaces and and discuss healthcare we do find that out i think on a on a fairly regular basis so just there saying thanks for people showing up yeah for sure <laughs> no always thanks for for everybody who shows up whether it's on the lives or if it's on uh just listening to the podcast we're gonna get the videos going again hopefully by wednesday for sure by next sunday for my closing little thoughts uh couple things that I want to just quickly touch on. Uh, the first one is we've had a couple of people asking, uh, hey, what's going on with, uh, with the, the breakdowns GoFundMe? Hopefully we're going to have a little bit of news on that in the, the next week or so. Um, because there's going to be a little bit of, a little bit of developments, hopefully a little bit, a little bit of movement and we are committed and I'm certainly committed to, to being as transparent as I can about that whole process. So stay tuned for that. Um, I want to also say, because there's been a lot of conversation, um, and it's not really the Alberta politics realm, although there is an alarming amount of overlap these days, just for the record, Chun Chu should resign. Not saying. Just saying. Um, as always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here at The Breakdown, we would love nothing more than if you signed up to be one of our monthly supporters at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash TheBreakdownAB where the, for the price of a, I'm not even going to say fancy cup of coffee this, this week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mix it up. For the cost of a fancy muffin or perhaps a, a pastry, you give one of those up. You can help us continue to produce the kind of content that we do and uh, get the toys that we need to, to do it. Um, I want to say a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, thanks. Thanks, guys. Uh, I also want to say a big thank you to everybody who listened tonight, everybody who participated tonight. Um, I, I loved hearing from FUCP. Uh, because you know, it's, it's one of the things that we got to be willing to do is listen more to the, the, the people on the front lines. Everybody likes to talk about, ah, the front lines, but unless you're actually listening to the front lines, you really don't know what's going on. I don't think so. Thank you so much for, for waving in on that one. Zayad, thank you so much for your perspectives as well. And, uh, if, uh, if we didn't get to you tonight, Hey, we're doing our midweekly thing because it goes, I mean, we did an hour and a half tonight and we barely, it feels like we barely scratched the surface. So we'll be back Wednesday evening at eight o'clock. And as always, if you missed the live broadcast, then you can always catch these everywhere. You listen to podcasts. I want to say a huge thank you to Deirdre Mitchell McLean and Sarah Biggs for their insights and expertise as always. Um, We'll see you Wednesday. In the meantime, keep the conversation going.